Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week, Adriano Pedrosa, the artistic director of the 60th Venice Biennale on his exhibition Foreigners Everywhere, plus the explosion of immersive art experiences and Barbara Kruger at the Serpentine in London. As he announced the themes, concepts and the list of artists for his international exhibition, I spoke to Adriano Pedrosa, the Brazilian at the helm of the Venice Biennale's main show, about his plans. As immersive art experiences pop up across the world, from London to Las Vegas, Tokyo and Abu Dhabi, I talked to Chris Michaels, an art and technology consultant and former director of digital communications and technology at the National Gallery in London, about this phenomenon and whether the popularity of these digital experiences is a threat or a compliment to museums and galleries. And this episode's work of the week is Barbara Kruger's Untitled Forever, an installation first made in 2017 and now on view in the Serpentine South Gallery in London, where Kruger's career survey arrived this week after spells in Chicago, Los Angeles and New York. I talk to Hans Ulrich Obrist, the Serpentine Gallery's artistic director, about the work. Don't forget, you can still buy the art newspaper's magazine The Year Ahead 2024, an authoritative guide to the world's must-see art exhibitions and museum openings, many of which were discussed on our podcast from 12th of January. Get a print and digital subscription to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com before the 15th of this month to receive a copy of The Year Ahead with your next printed issue. Or you can buy the magazine on its own on the website for just £9.99 or $13.69. Do also subscribe to this podcast and to our sister podcast, Podcast, a brush with which returned this week with an interview with the Polish painter Wilhelm Sasnel wherever you're listening. Please also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Adriano Pedrosa, the Brazilian artistic director of this year's Venice Biennale, announced on Wednesday his concept for the 60th Biennale's international exhibition, featuring 332 artists, including contemporary practitioners and those who work mainly in the 20th century. Foreigners Everywhere, as it's called, is dominated by those from or based in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East and Asia, as befits the first Venice Art Biennale, organised by a curator living and working in the Global South. And Pedrosa added that that he's also the first out queer artistic director of the event. I spoke to him about his ambitious plans for the show. Adriano, I wanted to begin by talking about the origins of the name Foreigners Everywhere, because it relates to Claire Fontaine, which is a collective of artists. But that collective is based on another collective. And it seems to me all of this is so bound up with the key kind of or at least some of the key subjects of the show and the meanings of the show. So tell us about those origins. So Claire Fontaine, the collective, as you say, it's a woman and a man, a couple, based in Palermo, was originally founded in Paris. They have been making these neon sculptures since 2005, which reads in different languages the expression foreigners everywhere. There are over 50 languages right now, Western languages, non-Western languages, indigenous languages, some in fact... They are extinct. And Claire Fontaine, in turn, uh, they were inspired or they appropriated an expression from the name of another political activist collective from Turin in Italy that were fighting racism and xenophobia in Italy in the beginning of the 2000s. Right. This to me is so crucial because you're presenting this exhibition right at the heart in one of the most famous cities in Georgia Maloney's Italy. It seems to me an important message to send out. You say this is a celebration of various peoples, and I think that's really crucial. 
in terms of how we might receive this exhibition? How deliberate is that? Well, it is, of course, plays an important role, I think, in Italy, but also around the Mediterranean and, and in the world, right? Because of the crisis around migration that we have going on and uh, in different parts of the world. I myself have had that title as a possible title for an exhibition for about 10 years. All right. I always felt that it would have been wonderful to do an exhibition, particularly in Italy around this expression, using this expression as a starting point. But I want to say also that the expression has many different connotations because I do think it's quite political, but it's also quite poetic, right? Yes. It has many different levels. So firstly, one could say that wherever you are, wherever you go, there are always foreigners around you. But also, on the other hand, that wherever you go, you are always deep down a foreigner yourself in a more sort of a subjective manner, in a psychological, psychoanalytic, perhaps, way of thinking of the foreign. It evokes also Freud's Unheimlich, the famous text that he wrote on the uncanny, where what is really strange is also quite familiar. And it also has a very site-specific meaning here in Venice, because Venice is really a city of foreigners. It's a city of tourists, of course, which are foreigners of a very privileged kind, a city with about 50,000 inhabitants, and that population more than triples during peak days because of tourists that come in into the city. So really, foreigners are indeed everywhere in Venice. And the Biennale itself has always been a celebration of foreign artists, uh, many foreign artists since 1895, uh, of course, Italian artists as well, but also many foreigners. It's really an international uh, exhibition and it has always been like that. But also, from the theme of the foreigner, I unfold into other subjects. So the initial sort of subject is the foreigner, the migrant, the expatriate, the refugee, the diasporic subject. But from that, I unfold into, first of all, the queer, because the queer is the strange, right? The first definition of queer is strange. And there are these connections in Portuguese, French, Spanish, and Italian between estranho and estrangeiro, no? Yes. Etrange and étranger, which is the foreigner and the strange. So the queer subject becomes a subject of interest. I myself also identify as a queer man, so many of these subjects go back to my own sort of personal life. I, of course, have been a foreigner many instances in my life, carrying a third world passport, which is, you know, always quite difficult when we travel around. And from the theme of the foreigner, I then unfold into the subject of the queer. The third subject is the queer of the outsider artist, which is the strange, the different the outsider linked to not just the outsider artist, but also the folk artist, the self-taught artist. And in Brazil and Latin America, I'm coming from Brazil, the subject of the artista popular, the artist from the people, as it were. Mm -hmm. And finally, the indigenous artist, again, very important 
where I come from in Brazil and Latin America, increasingly more recognition is given to indigenous cultures, and uh, the indigenous is often treated as a foreigner in his or her own land. So these are the four sort of main subjects of interest of what I'm calling the nucleo contemporaneo, the contemporary nucleus of the exhibition. And then we also have a nucleo historico, a historical section. We'll pick up on those in a moment. I wanted to go back to that point that you made, that in the press conference, which was yesterday as we record this, you said that you feel very implicated in this exhibition. I like that phrase, the sense that you're curating it, of course, from an objective point of view, from your experiences of seeing art around the world, of working with artists and so on. But there's a personal investment in there. Tell me more about that. Is that a consistent approach that you have to invest yourself, if you like, in the wider project of curating? I always try to do that. I can't always do that, but I always try to do that. We did a whole year at MASPI, Museu de Arte de São Paulo, where I work devoted to indigenous artists and indigenous histories. I'm, of course, not indigenous, but I come from a, a country and a continent where this is, you know, very important. Again, we did a, a full year devoted to Afro-Atlantic histories, and, of course, mm. I'm not Afro-Atlantic or black, but this is very important part of our culture in Brazil. But here in Venice, yes, I do feel quite implicated in these four subjects. Also, as the first curator actually living and based in the Global South. Of course, before me, there was the great late Okuyen Wezor in 2015, who was indeed the first curator from the Global South, though he was living and working in Munich at the time and uh, working quite a lot in the U.S. as well. So I'm the first one, in fact, based in the Global South, which is, you know, from an exhibition that started in 1895. I think that's quite a turning point, I would say. And in that sense, I also felt a certain degree of responsibility towards so many artists, so many scenes, so many histories in the Global South. And perhaps that's why I have so many artists in the exhibition as well. We have 332 artists in the exhibition. It might be coming at it from the wrong direction to a certain degree, but let's talk about that a bit in, in terms of the nucleo historico, because, of course, this is an exhibition predominantly of contemporary art in the sense that while there are more artists in the nucleo historico, actually they're represented by one work each, I believe. But still, it seems to me that one of the things that you're doing with that nucleo historico is, in a way reintroducing artists who should have been part of the, of the Biennale in the past but were denied that possibility for various reasons. Yes, exactly. That's important to mention. I mean, when you look at the list, you see, oh, there are more historical artists than contemporary artists. But the Nucleo Historico, which has about 200 artists, occupies three rooms. Actually, it's three sections and four rooms because one of the sections, portraits, occupies a double room, one room next to each other. Mm -hmm. So two sections in the central pavilion in the Giardini, devoted to portraits and to abstractions and another section in the Corderia of the Arsenale, the section devoted to the Italian diaspora, which is called Italians Everywhere. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the last sort of couple of decades, perhaps even since the late 90s, we see how artists from the Global South have been participating, particularly in biennials, uh, but also in museum exhibitions. You will see them represented by galleries in you know, different parts of the West, London and New York and Paris. So there is a significant presence of artists from the Global South within the contemporary field. 
But that is not happening as much with the 20th century. And the 20th century is the sort of temporal arc of the Biennale itself, which starts in 1895. So I thought it was interesting to reintroduce these artists because many of these artists are very iconic figures, very important figures in their own countries. Not all of them, but many of them are. Most of them really are. But they're not well known at all internationally. We are very familiar, of course, with the histories of modernisms in Europe, particularly in Western Europe and the US. And I myself might know, and many critics and curators in my country will know the histories of modernism in our own country, perhaps in our own region, but not so much about Africa and the Middle East and Asia. So the Nucleus Historico then focuses largely on what I'm calling modernisms in the global south, artists working in the 20th century in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and particularly South and Southeast Asia, which are, I think, really one of the most exciting topics in art history today. What I'm proposing, of course, I would have needed 10 years and a group of 10 people to put together like a really you know, comprehensive exhibition around that. But it is a subject that I've been looking at for the past 10 years or 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Biennale offers this incredible opportunity and with you know, a lot of resources, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of support from colleagues all over the world. And I thought it wasn't a possibility to propose something which is really more speculative. It's more of a provocation. There will be, of course, many gaps in it. But it's quite exciting to see how these artists have never really been juxtaposed in an exhibition like that. Right. So that's the proposal, you know, of the Nucleus Historico, really. You used a really nice term when you were talking about the way that modernism was absorbed into different parts of the global south, which was the, which was the phrase devoured. And I like that because there's a sort of grasping of it, but there's also a contextualizing of it. And in that sense, they are absorbing some of the kind of influences that you're actually exploring in the contemporary section, right? So there are forms of indigeneity in the way that modernism is absorbed into different communities across the world. Yes, yes. I mean, that also is referencing anthropophagia, anthropophagy which is a concept developed by Oswaldo de Andrade in Brazilian modernism. 1928 is the Manifesto Antropófago, and he is proposing a model, as it were, a poetic model, again, for the intellectual or the artist at the margins of Europe in the Global South, in Brazil, and a model for that intellectual to relate to to European metropolitan culture. Now, how do you relate to that culture? So what he proposes is that that culture, those references, those histories, narratives may be cannibalized, may be devoured by the intellectual at the margins of Europe, devoured, digested, and infused with other references to produce something of his or her own. The notion, the concept of anthropophagia again, harks back to the cannibalistic practice of the Tupinambá, which are indigenous people in pre-invasion Brazil, before the Portuguese came to Brazil. So I think it's still a very interesting concept, not the only concept, but a very interesting concept to understand and to look at some of these productions. 
The intriguing thing about the Italian diaspora, Italians everywhere section, is that you're using a display strategy, which I would say is probably the most beloved display strategy in amongst contemporary artists, amongst contemporary curators. It's Lena Bobardi's wonderful display strategy, which of course is for the museum that you now are director of, right? So tell us about that, why you chose to do that, because it's on the one hand, a kind of neat way of emblematizing your ideas, but also it's obviously a beautiful way of displaying art at the same time. Yes, quite beautiful, quite radical. Again, with the Italians everywhere section is really kind of a play with the uh, foreigners everywhere, Italians everywhere. So here I am, the curator from the Global South, with a focus on the Global South, coming to Italy, coming to the Biennale, doing a project that's focusing on Africa and Latin America and the Middle East and Asia. But I thought, well, it's really important also to establish a relationship or to propose a relationship with the Italian scene, with the Italian art history. And again, going back to my own background, I myself don't have Italian background, but I live in a city and in a country where we have the largest Italian diaspora in the world, right? Brazil, and the second country is Argentina. And I also work at a museum with a very strong Italian lineage, not only because of Lina Bobardi, who designed our building and the sort of wonderful and radical glass easel display system, but also Pietro Maria Bardi, who's the you know, founding director, was um, the director for 45 years and, in fact, was responsible for many Italian acquisitions for the collection, right? So it goes back to this, to my experience as well as a curator. So we are gathering 40 Italian artists, first generation, second generation Italian artists that lived in different parts of the world, mostly in Latin America, but also in Africa, Asia, including a number of them, We opened up here and there are a number of them that moved about in Europe and the US. And Lina Bobardi, of course, this, you know, extraordinary figure who won the Golden Lion in the architecture biennial recently in memoriam. In fact, she's, of course, no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And she is the most sort of emblematic, at least for me and many of us in Brazil, the most emblematic Italian diasporic figure. And I thought, yes, let's use her wonderful glass easel system, which I think will look quite incredible in the Arsenale. She was always interested in this relationship between fine art, as it were. We have a wonderful European collection, for example, Mm -hmm. the very fine sort of European collection pieces in the museum and a certain rawness of the concrete, of the rubber, of the glass materials in her architecture and her exhibition displays. So I think we'll have that rawness in the Arsenali as well because of, you know, the whole architecture of the space, right, with the exposed bricks. So I think it will be quite interesting to see that contrast as well. Absolutely. Let's talk about the Nuclear Contemporaneo because one of the interesting things is it seems to me that within your themes they're completely intersectional in the sense that they will overlap all the way through the show. And I was looking at the list of artists and it's very clear to me that you're not going to have a section of clearly immigrant artists, a section of queer artists, a section of of outsider artists, a section of indigenous artists. It seems to me it's all going to overlap and there'll be wonderful interrelations. Is that the right idea? (laughs) Yes, I think mostly because we also have queer 
artists that are immigrants. Of course. And we have indigenous <laughs> artists that are outsider artists and etc. So I was thinking in terms of the display, I was trying to make connections between the works, particularly in the central pavilion, because we have these very distinct rooms. So there's many rooms around different dialogues, for example. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I do have one section in the Arsenale. I mean, we have queer artists throughout the exhibition, but there's one particular section that ended up uh, gathering many queer artists, trans artists, non-binary artists from different parts of the world. And there's also a number of thematic threads or leitmotifs that came up. That's Mm. also quite interesting. You mentioned two particular leitmotifs. And and one of them is actually, I've literally just written a column about the dominance of textile art and how textiles are suddenly so present everywhere. And so it's it's wonderful to see that there is going to be a sort of consistent thread of textiles, to use the term, all the way through that show. Yes, there are textiles throughout the show. Again, it's not a topic, it's not a subject of the exhibition, but it merged quite organically. But it is something of interest to me. When we were putting the artists in the floor plan, as we developed the exhibition, and I'm working with, you know, Juliana Zibio, the architect, Amanda Carneiro, the artistic organizer working in the Nucleo Contemporaneo, and Sofia Gocci, the artistic organizer, which are really sort of working as assistant curators, mm-hmm. but Sofia Gocci working in the Nucleo Historico. We ended up doing a large section devoted to works around textiles, which is, you know, very much present in the exhibition. But there are also works by artists working in textiles, again, throughout the show as well, in the Nucleo Historico as well. And I think the second really interesting motif that, again, came up very organically is families of artists, Mm. artists related by blood. That was quite interesting suddenly I saw that this was coming about in the exhibition. I mean, it wasn't kind of a starting point for the exhibition. But after, of course, I saw that happening, I felt, oh, it's interesting to try to develop that. I mean, I don't really start with like a very sort of precise and rigid framework, but I allow the research to inform the framework as well. So we have uh, mostly indigenous artists working in, you know, family groups or arrangements. We have from Guatemala, Andres Cujuchichi and his granddaughter, Joselina Cujuchichi, who are indigenous artists. Again, indigenous artists from Colombia, Abel Rodriguez, well-known artist. Abel Rodriguez, in fact, was a documenter a few years ago. And his son, Aikobu. Fred Graham and his son, Brett Graham, who are Maori artists from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Juana Marta Rodas and her daughter Julia Isidris, who are ceramicists from Paraguay. The MACU, the movement of Huniquin artists from the western part of the Brazilian Amazon. It's a collective of mostly father and wife and sons. Santiago Yawarkani and his son Rember Yawarkani as well, indigenous artists from Peru. Mm-hmm. But we also have Philomé and Senec Aubin, brothers from Haiti, from the School of Self-Taught Artists from Haiti. Suzanne Wenger, an Austrian woman who migrated to Nigeria and her adopted son, Sangodari Yahala, wonderful artist working in textiles and batik as well. And then we have a curious couple, a British woman, in fact, Lorna Selim, mm-hmm. who 
married the very famous, well-known, iconic figure in Arab modernism, Jawad Selin. So she's born in the UK, lived in Iraq with Jawad, and then moved back to the UK. Right. So those are some of the, you know, father and son, brothers and relatives and artists that we have in the exhibition. Again, not in a section. You see them throughout the exhibition, but always in pairs, always in the same room or next to each other. Oh, that's really nice. I wanted to ask also about your choice of contemporary artists, because I was just looking down through the list, and I don't know if there were that many who've shown in the main show before. I think perhaps Teresa Margolis has, but I couldn't see any real standout names who've made regular appearances in these big international Venice shows. You know. Yes, so I would say this was kind of a priority when working through the list. I think it always is. I know Cecilia Alemani also was concerned with that. Mm-hmm. We're trying to bring, you know, artists that have never participated, given this opportunity to other artists. Mm-hmm. I have, if I'm not mistaken, it's only two artists that have participated in what you're calling the main show. We call the international exhibition. Yeah. So Teresa Margolis has participated and Bushra Halili has ah, participated. Yes. Oh, in fact, another one, Superflex. Also, the group from Denmark, they participated in Francesco Bonami's exhibition in 2003. Yeah. So those are the three artists that have already participated in what you're calling the main show. But we have other artists that have participated in national pavilions. Right. And that is Mariana Teieria, represented Argentina. Beatriz Milazes, who is an interesting character because she's not really in the international exhibition. She's in another pavilion, which I also curate in the Arsenali, called the Pavilion of Applied Arts, which is made in collaboration with the Victorian Albert Museum. And of course, I chose her because she works with a lot of references to applied arts, but she's not in the international exhibition. She's in my catalog. She's curated by me, but not in the international exhibition itself. And then I have other artists who participated in collateral events, the famous collateral events. That is the case of someone like Ivan Argotti from Colombia, mm-hmm. and Inca Shonibari also yeah. participated in a collateral event. And in fact, Inca this year, he has a double presence because he will also be in the Nigerian pavilion. Right. And uh, so these are some of the artists. And looking at the Nucleus Storico also, several artists have participated in the past, but in the 20th century. Yeah. So that's another aspect that we were looking at. Lastly, Adriano, I just wanted to say that you said yesterday it's a celebration of the foreign, the queer, the outsider, the indigenous. It's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because as we started off this conversation, there's a strong critique through this show about so many different aspects of the art scene, the art production world, etc. There's a lot of critique in here, but you do also want it to be a celebration. That's important, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I think it is. I think it is a celebration. I think you'll find critiques of different sorts within the artist's works as well. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, many critical works in the exhibition, But this is perhaps how you can see it. When you're celebrating something, you're not celebrating something else, right? So I think, you know, given that I am the first curator living in the Global South, I thought I also wanted to do this focus and to celebrate the Global South. That doesn't mean that I'm not interested in, you know, art from Europe and the US or that I don't think that is relevant, that is important. No, it's just this year, this is the approach. And perhaps next year, there will be another curator that will focus on something else, will celebrate something else as well. So I would 
underlined more sort of the focus and the celebration rather than, of course, the critique because of certain artists or certain artists from certain places that are not in the exhibition. Adriano, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much. The 60th Venice Biennale, Foreigners Everywhere, is at the Giardini and Arsenale in Venice in Italy from the 20th of April to the 24th of November. We will, as ever, be doing a special episode of the Week in Art podcast during the week of the opening and interviews with some of the artists involved on our sister podcast, A Brush With. And the art newspaper will also be doing a Venice Biennale magazine. Coming up, our immersive experience is taking over from museums and Hansel-Rick Obrist on Barbara Kruger. That's after this week's news bulletin. The jury in the civil fraud trial between Sotheby's and the Russian billionaire Dmitry Rybolovlev, which we discussed on this podcast on the 19th of January, reached its verdict on Tuesday. It ruled in favour of Sotheby's on all counts, ending one of the longest running and most dramatic legal disputes in art market history. Rybolovlev alleged that Sotheby's aided the Swiss dealer Yves Bouvier in defrauding him in the purchase of numerous works of art to the tune of $1 billion. Bouvier denies wrongdoing and has never been convicted of fraud. Sotheby said that the ruling reaffirms the auction house's long-standing commitment to upholding the highest standards of integrity, ethics and professionalism in all aspects of the art market and that it totally vindicates the auction house of any alleged misconduct. Rybolovlev's lawyers claimed that the case achieved his goal of shining a light on the lack of transparency that plagues the art market and that the verdict only highlights the need for reforms. A late portrait by Gustav Klimt that was hidden in private ownership and believed lost for decades is to be auctioned in April in Vienna after the current owner reached a settlement with the heirs of the family that commissioned the painting. Portrait of Fräulein Lisa, dating from 1917, is expected to fetch between $30 million and $50 million at the Vienna auction house Imkinski on the 24th of April. Imkinski said in a statement that while the picture is documented in Klimt catalogue resume, it was only known to art historians until recently as a black and white photograph. In negotiations with the Lisa heirs, the auction house assumed a worst-case scenario, that is, that the painting was unlawfully expropriated during the Nazi era, but there was no evidence of this, according to Ernst Ployl, one of the managing directors of Inkimsky. The heirs will receive a share of the proceeds from the auction, he said. And finally, a painting of Moses by the Italian Baroque artist Guercino has been bought by Jacob Rothschild's Charitable Foundation for around €2 million. The work is expected to go on permanent display at Waddesdon Manor in Buckinghamshire in the UK, which is managed by the Rothschild Foundation on behalf of the National Trust. Moses was a so-called sleeper, offered at the Paris-based Chayette and Cheval auction house in November 2022 as by a 17th-century Bolognese follower of Guido Reni, with an estimate of just 5000 to 6000 Euros. Several dealers spotted its significance, believing it might be a Guercino, and it sold for €590,000. The buyer was the London Paris dealer Moretti Fine Art. The painting was restored and examined by specialists, and its attribution to Guercino is supported by leading experts in the Italian Baroque. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app.
Now, what was the most visited attraction in the UK last year? If you're saying the British Museum, the National Gallery or Tate Modern in London, you're wrong. It was Outernet, which describes itself as the virtually real immersive entertainment district, bringing together breathtaking arts, culture and music experiences for all the family. It recorded 6.25 million visitors in its first year of operation, compared to 5.83 million at the British Museum in the same period. As the art and technology consultant Chris Michaels writes in the front page story of our February print edition, Outernet is just one among more than 100 such immersive institutions to have emerged in the past five years, forming a series of consciously global networks and signalling a tipping point in the way the world consumes visual culture. It might also pose a challenge for museums and galleries in their present form. I spoke to Chris about the origins, the funding and the effects of the immersive explosion. Chris, we're having this conversation because you've written a piece for the art newspaper and it feels like a major moment in the relationship between immersive spaces and the traditional museum. You've called it a tipping point in the article. Why is that so? Well, I think so because we've hit a milestone just at the end of last year, Altonet, uh, one of these kind of great new venues that we're seeing pop up all around the world. And it got 6.25 million visitors in its first year. And that's a fairly extraordinary number and puts it, as in their words, as the most popular visitor attraction in uh, in London. But I think once we see the final numbers come out from Alva later this year, will be the most popular in the UK. And for a place that's only 12 months old, up against you know the, the might of the British Museum or the National Gallery, this strikes me as a fairly extraordinary moment in time. Absolutely. I mean, we should Describe Outernet to our listeners, because many of our listeners will have been, but many won't. It's very accessible, and that's key to its success, isn't it? Because it's right there outside a tube station. Yeah, I mean, like any great tourist destination, it's it's very accessible to travel. And so uh, you emerge up the escalator at Tottenham Court Road tube station, and you're faced with this kind of black and gold box of various parts, which is covered in screens. And that's critical to what Altona is. It is a, a manifestation of kind of media architecture at grand scale. So you encounter there a series of open spaces, which are from top to bottom covered with the highest resolution screens in the world. And they show a mixture of digital art and other types of cultural content and entertainment. And they show it all day, every day, seven days a week. And six and a half million people have been there in the last year. Right. And this is a part of a wider trend, as you say. Can you give us a sense of the scale of that trend? How many of these spaces are there out there? And are they basically all offering the same thing? There's a distinction between different types. But broadly, what we've seen since 2018 is the emergence of a series of kind of art gallery-like institutions built around digital content, spread like wildfire around the world. The first of these was in Paris in 2018, a place called L'Atelier de Lumière. And it kind of just started to define a model that I think is now spread uh, all around the world. There's at least 100 of these. And even this week, I've seen three more being announced, one in Boston, one in New York, and one in Philadelphia. So, you know, just on the Atlantic East Coast of America, they're growing everywhere. What they contain is really four things. One is they're built around digital technology. Two, they show digital art in various different forms, whether commissions by new digital artists or pieces that come from a kind of non-linear documentary format about art. Three, they're bringing different types of investment into this space. 
critically, there's kind of private money flowing in to fund this. And that's, I think, a really big deal for galleries and museums. And four, we're seeing this kind of, I said, new kind of architecture happen as a result of it. They're changing the way buildings are being built. And I think that's a, like, that's a big trend for the future. Right. Well, so should we drill down then into some of those things? Because one of the kind of key factors that people will have seen on their social media and indeed may have visited themselves is this kind of bespoke digital works whether they are all art is a different matter, but these digital works which are created especially for these spaces. And actually that's got a bit of a longer tradition, hasn't it? I can remember seeing the Rain Room at the Barbican, for yeah. instance. There's, there is a kind of art which is about experience, which is often involving multiple people, multiple creators, and creates a kind of immersive world into which people can enter, often for free, but not always, actually. Yeah, I mean, as with all of digital art, there's a history that goes back at least to the 50s and 60s of kind of environments and immersive spaces. I mean, if you go to the House to Kunst in Munich, at the moment there's an astonishing show called Inside Other Spaces which looks back to the late 1950s and early 60s kind of feminist art traditions around environments. So this is not new in and of itself but what's happened is that it's found a path to kind of popularity at scale. You know, this stuff was pretty obscure, often difficult, often at the kind of fringes of contemporary art, and suddenly it's exploded very much into the mainstream of digital entertainment culture. And that comes with some trade-offs. You know, the last decade of content has been driven in part by kind of of out-of-copyright great dead artists, right? The only reason, really, that Van Gogh and others kind of were the stimulus for this was high-resolution imagery of their work was available, copyright-free, you know, on Wikipedia and everywhere else and people could go out and do what the hell they liked with it and of course the public knows who Van Gogh is so they kind of trailed in at, at scale but whatever the kind of slightly murky origins of that I think we're now seeing some pretty interesting material emerge. again I am not an art historian so I won't tell you whether it's art or not that's, uh, that's someone else's <laughs> judgment to make but there's no question there's distinctive forms of content appearing here and distinctive artists and creators working now across the world in lots of different ways It's really interesting what you said about how maybe the origins of this are a form of installation art, which, as you say, might have been quite difficult. Because one of my perceptions as a critic has been that very often these are very much emphasising a sort of feeling of wellness or positivity as opposed to a critical space. Would you say that's the sort of common factor in in the kind of the explosion of this phenomenon? Uh, I mean, there's definitely part of that, right, is that people are trying to connect this to contemporary trends towards a kind of wellness. I mean, uh, you know, for me as a content consumer, I found that a bit uncomfortable. So, you know, art's not always there to make you feel good, right? But it should do it at certain moments. And so, you know, at a time when the world's fairly troubled, having things which can kind of bathe you in light and heal you with it doesn't seem the worst thing in the world. But there, of course, as you say, there are more uncomfortable traditions around that and more uncomfortable artists who will emerge from that. Rain Room was not necessarily a totally comfortable experience, but it was an extremely powerful one. Right. And then let's talk about, you mentioned the sort of out of copyright artists that are just sweeping the world, these immersive experiences. I saw one at Leonardo da Vinci in Amboise in France in the mm-hmm. summer. It seems to me that what they're doing in those circumstances are taking these existing artworks and creating almost a kind of new kind of artwork from them. As in, there's very little correlation to the paint and canvas and the frame in some ways, because they're expanded massively and they become these kind of experiences of light and sound. Yeah. I mean, what I tried to describe it in the pieces is a kind of non-linear documentary storytelling. And I think that's really what it is. And I think the piece at the Lightroom about David Hockney was a brilliant example of that, where, you know, it was nine chapters, you could enter or leave at any point. And it came in a kind of, I said, non-linear sequence. That's the clever bit, in a way, is that 
you know, again, historically, storytelling as film as a visual medium, you start at the beginning and get to the end, which, you know, you could do memento and do it backwards, but you still kind of work in that kind of beginning to end frame. The necessity of the kinds of spaces this content is put into means that people need to be able to enter and leave at any point, but still have a complete experience. And that's where I think some of the pioneering in content productions really happened here in kind of thinking how to tell stories on that basis. Right. It's interesting that you use that Hockney example. Going in again as an art critic, one of the things I found frustrating about that experience was that there's this point where Hockney, I think, or or somebody is flicking through one of Hockney's sketchbooks and it's done on completely the terms of the filmmaker, if you like. So it's flicking through and you don't get to dwell on it in the way that you would in a gallery. So for me, that was a deeply frustrating experience. Whereas when it chose to focus on his stage designs, I thought it was tremendously effective in the sense that there were a series of designs that he'd done for a grand space, for a theatrical space. And it seems to me that it presented all sorts of interesting ideas around what is the nature of this kind of experience? Is it actually closer to a kind of cinematic or theatre experience as opposed to a traditional museum experience? I mean, yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we ought to recognise is this is a coming together of different creative disciplines. You know, the people who can make content for these spaces will have technical skills as much in film production as in artistic production, as much in game design as in exhibition design. And so that's kind of interesting and exciting in its own right. There are faults, therefore, that are imperfect in that. That ability that exhibitions at their best do to kind of stop you and get you to think and get you to look and absorb at a kind of quiet pace no one's quite figured out how to do that yet right it may come of course and you know in some of these spaces you see secondary rooms which offer a bit more kind of interpretive depth but you know you are seeing something broadly as time-based media which keeps ticking as i said you you experience it in a non-linear way but you are still experiencing something that doesn't stop whether you want it to or not right and there's this curious experience in terms of the viewer's agency, it seems to me. Because when you go to a museum and there are paintings around the walls, you can go up to them in your own time. You can spend as long or as short as you want with them. Whereas very often with these experiences, you don't have that agency. And yet, of course, you have the agency to walk around. Like you say, it's non-linear, so you can join or leave at any time. You can see it loop very often and so on. So I'm curious about what you think the viewing experience is with these things and how much is that also mediated so often? Because when I, for instance, I came via the outernet today, just wanted to see that space, given that we were going to be talking about it. And partly because people were encouraged to click a QR code, literally everybody in the space was on their phone. <laughs> and and it, it occurred to me that, you know, so often with these kind of experiences, it is about capturing that moment, about experiencing it and telling people that you have had that experience. I mean, look, of course, it's baked in as part of the marketing model of this stuff, right? These guys are living in a, a social media inflected world and are probably more sophisticated at leveraging it than museums or galleries have been, which, of course, you know, the Kasama effect and all that other stuff in the, in mainstream galleries around the world shouldn't underestimate how strong and exploitive on just the same nature that is. But I think there was one really interesting thing that, that Marco Brambilla, one of the artists we interviewed for the piece, said was that actually the nature of those spaces is such that you can't capture all of them in a single image. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of actually quite clever about them is they defy being kind of totally captured on a a mobile phone screen. So you do have to go there to see them yourself. I worked at the National Gallery for five years, so I spent a lot of time looking at pre-gallery art in its religious sense. There's a bit in the experience that's much closer to going to look at art in a church 
than is in our kind of post-enlightenment ideas of what you do in a gallery. The last 250 years, we've taught people how to look at art in a very particular way, right? You walk around, you stop and think, and you get fed up and go for a coffee, and then you come back and look, you know, that thing is nothing to do really in, inherently with the art itself. In the churches that preceded them, you sat on the pew, you sat on, and you got a kind of point of view onto the art on the walls, depending on where you were in the room. It's much more similar, I think, going to Altonet in terms of nature of experience, I'm not talking about quality or meaning, but nature as it is going to the Sistine Chapel than it is going to the Uffizi or going to the National Gallery. It's interesting you talk about meaning there because it seems to me that we should stress that just as with art, these experiences have a full range of quality, effect and so on in the sense that there are going to be very many that are very trivial in some ways and and others that will have some kind of in-depth effect on on the viewer. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, we we should also recognise the business model basis on which these places are being brought to existence. They are not there, first of all, as art galleries in many contexts, particularly Outernet and The Sphere. They're there as something at the adjacency of kind of live entertainment and the advertising industry. And of course, in those contexts, the meaning you're trying to create is to sell stuff. So we've got to be truthful and and realistic about this. This is happening in a hyper-capitalist society, right? And they are outcrops of hyper-capitalism on one side. But on the other, there is the chance, I think, in this for great art and artistry to emerge. And I think we're certainly seeing some brilliantly interesting creators in that space. Whether they are the Michelangelos of the 21st century, time will tell, but there's some really interesting stuff happening and we should recognise its qualities. What should museums be thinking right now? Is this a challenge? Is this a competitor? Should they be embracing it? What's your view? I think if you are not thinking about it and you're a museum director, you're really ignoring something very important in the world. You know, museums are in a difficult period of their own at the moment. Post-COVID recovery has not been easy. The visitor recovery has not been easy. I mean, some markets are different from others, but, you know, these are challenging times. And you are seeing, I think, the digital age is competitor to the gallery and museum emerging very fast. So, you know, on one side, partnership has to be an option. On two, direct response has to be an option. When I was at the National Gallery, we made a series of immersive experiences as an early stage response to this you know, not perfect, but they were an attempt to do something with the, you know, on the basis of the incredible artists we had to work with there. Right. And I think one of the biggest challenges you've outlined earlier in our conversation, which is about funding, because you've talked about this, there's a lot of money flowing into this territory. Do you think it's flowing there instead of museums or alongside? I mean, one of the examples I give in the pieces, I think one of the bits that remains to be resolved. So on one side, Len Blavatnik is an incredibly important philanthropic funder of the arts in this country over the last decade. You know, the second half of Tate Modern exists in part because of his investment. And on the second side, his business has supported the development of Lightroom. So there is a chance that, you know, on one side, you've supported the growth of a great public cultural institution. On the other side, you may have given it a competitor it will find hard to deal with. So we don't know yet. But, I mean, of course, at a point where public funding is stretched beyond belief, things which are highly backed by very powerful global investors, and we're seeing some of the biggest investment companies in the world behind this stuff, means that the gallery sector faces a new and potent kind of challenge. How are these people making their money back, if you like? Are they making their money back, or is, it, is there an element of philanthropy about it? They're trying to make the money back, right? So, I mean, the thing that all of these guys are trying to do is to build global networks at scale. And again, another thing that ties it very much to the behaviours of the kind of digital age is no one wants to just do one. You know, Lightroom's already got two. Outernet have been very clear they're going to New York and LA next. Sphere's been involved in a very kind of highly public wrangle with the London planning authorities. 
but they'll end up in whether it's Saudi or France or somewhere pretty quickly, right? So, you know, Culture Space in France has already got nine. Team Lab are opening up venues everywhere they can directly, you know, now architecting their own buildings. So, you know, this is growing at speed. And the thing that's true about it, and again, which makes them very much kind of digital aid entities, is that they go quick. You know, this isn't like, I mean, we're the best in the world, the Guggenheim thinking, you know, working for a decade to try and find the next venue. They go the next one six months later. You know, Lightroom opened in March last year. Seoul was open by November. Right. You know, so you're moving at pace because you're moving in private markets and can move at speed. Team Lab only announced their deal to go on the same bit of Abu Dhabi that the Louvre is on in December 2022. That opens later this year. Yeah, it's, it's happening really fast, isn't it? Team Lab are really interesting part of this because i have seen team labs works in museums but i'm certain that more people are going to team lab spaces in japan china and soon to be in saudi arabia and and abu dhabi than went to the museum shows that they were part of so in a way they're going direct to their consumers aren't they yeah i mean they're a classic example of what everyone worries about in the digital age which is disintermediation right which is they don't need gallerists they don't need museum partners. They just want to do it themselves. I've met the guys from Team Lab. There's a thousand of them, you know, so they're a scale of organisations similar to a big museum. But those guys are all computer programmers and animators, right? So their job, I mean, I, the cost of running it must be, I mean, astonishing if you kind of thought about it for a second, you know, is to produce content and art on their model of doing it at extraordinary scale, at speed, and then to go out and find places to put it. So, again, it's business dynamics, you know. To keep those 1,000 people gainfully employed, they've got to keep making new stuff. And the world really seems to enjoy that stuff. You know, they are probably the most sophisticated creators in this space. And there seems to be lots of world, both, you know, new markets like Saudi or uh, pre-existent ones, you know, in huge demand for it. Right. One of the things... I think that probably disturbs me most about this is you've talked about the hypercapitalism. You talked about these big investors wanting to make their money. And we think of art as a space, misguidedly probably, that is not overly sullied by mammon. <laughs> um, that is wrong. Obviously, the amount of times we talked about money on this podcast would give the lie to that. But the museum space in particular is a kind of space of humanity, of ethics, of all those kind of things. When it's so flagrantly money-making, so flagrantly commercial, does that somehow cheapen the whole experience to a degree? Or is this just the way it is and we have to embrace it? Whether anyone's really getting rich at this point, who knows? But there are plenty of contemporary artists who are much richer than any of these guys are at this stage, right? So, I mean, again, we, we ought to put it in context for that. I mean, I think what we're seeing is probably, again, more similar in nature to some of the Renaissance than it is to some of what's happened afterwards. I mean, you know, it's backing up a bit as an idea, but... You know, it was in 18th century economics that we said that art wasn't part of the economy, right? Adam Smith's like, you know, the ballet dancers and the crazy people and the artists, they don't make money. They're just somewhere <laughs> else out there, right? And, you know, and museums have been kind of the living personification of that idea. It was never quite true because Sotheby's and Christie's, which were founded pretty much exactly the same time, right? They, they prove a different story, which is that art has always been connected to commerce. I think we ought to be a little bit cautious about it. But also, I mean, there are bits around the ecosystem here where a lot of these guys will start their careers. You know, Rafik Anadol hasn't always been the, the flavour of the month. He's been building a practice over a long period of time. And I bet his fees are a bit higher now than they were 10 years ago, let's put it that way. So, you know, their creators growing, an artist growing a uh, career, and, you know, kind of good luck to them. They've suddenly hit a moment, right, where they could do it. That moment might not last, so, you know, take it while you can. 
Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You can read Chris's story on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Before I go on, here's a little advice, courtesy of Barbara Kruger. Take care of yourself. That's one of the sound snippets that punctuate Barbara Kruger's exhibition, Thinking of You, I Mean Me, I Mean You, which has arrived via its spells at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art New York at the Serpentine South Gallery in London. She'll also show in Outernet the immersive space that we discussed earlier from the 4th of March as an accompaniment to the Serpentine show. But for the work of the week, we're discussing the piece at the threshold of which was that cryptic instruction you heard a moment ago, Untitled Forever first made in 2017. I discussed it with Hans Ulrich Obrist, the Serpentine Gallery's artistic director. Hans Ulrich, we're standing in Untitled Forever, a surround installation by Barbara Kruger. It's giving onto the park, and I wanted to start by talking about that. So we've got Hyde Park just outside Kensington Gardens. We're looking over the green and the verdant, and we turn around and we're surrounded by text. It's really powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, we're very excited that the exhibition really happens both inside and outside. I mean, it's what Lina Bobardi, the um, architect, once said, the insides are on the outside and vice versa. And that's, of course, what happens here with the exhibition of Barbara Kruger, who initially, as she told us, actually as a young person, wanted to be an architect before she became an artist. She was really interested always in the built environment and in architecture, and this fascination never went away. And, and in a way, it's, it's interesting when she came to see the space here, she talked about architecture as, in her own words, one of the predominant orderings of social space. And of course, her interest also is that by entering an architectural space or by entering her work, you inevitably, immediately, as it is the case here, become part of it. Absolutely. And so from the, quite from the beginning, she really looked at the building here, and that's, of course, also what is always exciting with the Serpentine is that it's a takeover. Whenever an artist has a show, if it's the South Gallery or the North Gallery, they really take over the space and um, can transform it into a kind of a Gesamtkunstwerk. And on her first visit... This space here, the space which really goes towards the outside, was for her very important. It was very important that we can see from far away the exhibition. It's, of course, also with this space almost like a magnifying glass because the letters she uses, particularly the U, the direct address, because she always addresses the viewer so directly, the U can be seen from almost miles away. Absolutely. And the interesting thing, of course, in that is by using text, by constructing a space around us with text... She immediately establishes that link between architecture and the people and ideas that surround it. So I feel like, you know, we've got Orwell under our feet, this brutal quote by Orwell, and I'll read it. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. That, as an invitation to enter a space, is pretty brutal, isn't it? Yeah, and and actually it's only one example of where the exhibition happens inside and outside because we have also the the works she created for the taxis. There is also going to be a piece in Outernet. And of course in the background here, whilst we talk, we have the sound piece. And the sound piece does not only appear in the gallery, the sound piece also appears in the bookshop. The the sound piece happens even in the toilets. And the exhibition really leaks in that sense. I mean, it's something we've had before, thinking about the exhibition of Pierre Wieg, which was also all about exactly leaking into the park or when uh, Trisha Donnelly wanted the doors to be open, when Thomas Saraceno 
switches off the air conditioning this summer throughout the summer, adds solar panels on the roof and transform this building. I mean, it's really the idea that artists can transform not only the space, but in a way the, the entire building is kind of part of it. And we also were very interested in terms of this piece as a possibility to maybe also bring visitors to the gallery who, because that's of course always the possibility with the park, with our pavilions, it's very much for everyone. It's art for all. It's free. We have free admission here, but still there are doors. And so, in a way, whenever we can, you know, open these doors and make it more accessible, and uh, I suppose that this piece will, you know, certainly uh, invite and bring in visitors who might not visit Absolutely. art exhibitions normally. No, and that democratic impulse of Barbara's is really crucial in establishing that sort of invitation to the public to make of the work what they will, won't they? I mean, one of the things that I've consistently seen in her quotes in the interview with you, for instance, is this idea that she talks about all manner of experience and extreme and nuance in human experience. I mean, even on the wall here, we've got this is about loving and longing, about shaming and hating in the first line of this text on the wall. She wants to address the breadth of human experience. And it seems to me this is not a subjective piece. It's this kind of very open approach. And she wants the public to come in and find for themselves the meaning of the work, if you like. Yeah, it's in that sense completely participatory. Uh, There is no way to not somehow... Uh, get into it and it addresses the viewer directly and uh, raises questions as you say you know very broad questions of subject of objects uh, of relations it's always a commentary as she says and when we ask her about this direct address and how she always succeeds in doing that she said it has to do with receivership and spectatorship because pronouns really cut through degrees the idea that somehow by direct address you could make a meaning that goes from a to b and doesn't go to z in between you know is a motor for for her work and in that sense the idea no, of, of duchamp that the viewer does half of the work. When we had the Dominique Gonzalez Ferraster exhibition here, Dominique said at least half of the work. I would say that's also true for Barbara. Yeah, and she uses a group of fonts which are sans-serif fonts. And it was really interesting to see in that interview with you that she said she took that from tabloid newspapers. And it's really interesting how, like when she was talking about Donald Trump, for instance, she obviously shows no admiration for him, but she recognises that he speaks in a way that cuts through, in the way that you're talking about with her text there. And using this sans-serif font, this tabloid font, if you like, it does cut through. So there's that, as you say, that direct address. It's using techniques that we might associate with dubious elements of the media that we consume, but she wants to use that to a different effect, to a complicated effect, if you like. Yeah, very much so. She, I mean, also has a background, there is architecture at the beginning, and she has this passion and, you know, obsession for architecture, but then, of course, her work evolves and grows also out of her work for for magazines mm-hmm. and she very early on in her on her trajectory basically had this experience with magazines and I think a lot of what you just said has to do also with uh, with that background and we can see in the exhibition also if you think about the inside and the outside it's of course not only the gallery the park the city it's almost like concentric circles but it's the world and I mean it is fascinating to see how in many different contexts her work gets appropriated, gets basically interpreted, if it's in the music field, if it's in the fashion field, all over the world. And in a way, at a certain moment, she decided to actually bring that all back, to basically reappropriate it, bring it back into her work. And we have, of course, these posters where we have these pieces on the wall in the first room where we can really see how widely her work travelled and continues to travel in all kinds of different contexts. 
And she really values the fact that she didn't come to the art world in a conventional way. Yeah. And in a way that helps that mode of address. She's looking, as you say, at architecture, at, at typesetting, at advertising. She went to art school very briefly, but she didn't by any means take the standard route through art school, as in she got a BA, she got an MA and so on. And she thinks that that unconventionality in her background, if you like, has helped her in terms of how she's able to establish a language and communicate with her audience. And that's something which uh, continues to be the case, I think, in all her exhibition, in all the work uh, she does. And, of course, there are uh, all these different readings. There is a reading of the work in the art world, but then there is also a reading uh, of it completely outside the art world, I think. So it's also, I think, interesting, this idea of the work, in that sense, speaking to many different audiences. There's a sort of sense of theatre as well, isn't there? I mean, you, you talked about that sound element. And as we enter or leave this space, as we're occupying it, as we're talking here in the background, very occasionally a voice will say to us, there you go, take care of yourself. And it, of course, the immediate response is, why? Why do I need to take care of myself? She, she likes to provoke a kind of certain theatrical unsettling feel. Yeah? There's also a moment where an answering machine, I mean, basically that is at a moment, it's as if one isn't sure if it's one's own phone, or if it's actually the piece. <laughs> That's also a slightly destabilizing moment. But I think the, the idea also that she conceives of it in a way, because we're here in one piece, and it's interesting because you asked me to choose one piece where we would talk about this one work, and um, I thought it would be nice and important to talk about this piece because it brings together so many aspects of her work, the direct address, yeah. you know, the blur of the inside and the outside, but it's also kind of, in a way, difficult to choose one piece because, in a way, the whole exhibition is a piece. Yeah. I really think that she composes this exhibition, and, of course... In a way, it's all about this commentary. And that's something which has always been there. I mean, I came across the work for the first time in the, in the 1980s as a teenager, basically. I went to see Rosemary Trockel in the later part of the 80s, and there was a Fischli Weiss opening in Cologne, my Swiss friend Fischli Weiss, the artist. And actually, at that moment, Monica Sprüt did this magazine, Eau de Cologne, mainly focused on women artists of her generation, and of course, Barbara Kruger, Jenny Holzer, Rosemary Trockel, and others were part, were part of that, and Barbara Kruger also did the cover of this magazine Eau de Cologne and that's when I saw the work for the first time almost 40 years ago as a teenager in Cologne and already then she talked about this idea of it being a commentary you know that the work has to do with this idea of the commentary and I think if you think about what all these pieces in the show have in common what maybe binds them what brings them together is this idea of, of a commentary but also this ability she describes to actually spatialize textualize visualize, maybe even musicalize, no? One's uh, kind of experience of the world. And that happens in a way not uh, sort of on a diaristic, literal level, but it happens really through that ongoing commentary. And she, she keeps coming back to that, no? And for her, for Barbara, the commentary is a collection of moments, a collection of days, of nights, of years of life. And in that sense, it's, it's perpetual. And of course, it connects not only to the collection of moments, days, nights, years, life of her life, but also of our own lives. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to see you. Barbara Kruger, Thinking of You, I Mean Me, I Mean You, is at the Serpentine South Gallery until the 17th of March. 
And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Town Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Adriano, Chris, and Hans Ulrich. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.